how many pages of notes do you think I have today? Uh, just shoot, shoot three. Anyone else? Half a page? I used to do that when I was a youth pastor. Anyone else? One? Any, seven? Seven? Dos? Two? Nine. Who said nine? DJ nine. If you are in the spirit of intercessory and you're in the spirit of prayer, I want you to do something as I get ready to preach. Pray for your pastor and say, Lord, as he's preaching, let him preach this. I have eight <laughs> pages of notes. It was one of those moments that God was just speaking to me, and I was literally looking at my computer like this. And um, so just pray for me as we go through this. Some of you guys are like, eight, we should not have come to church today. <laughs> We're going to be here past 1230 for sure. Watch how God does this thing. Amen? Today, as we jump into Not Normal, and when we jump into our, our uh, third installment of Not Normal, uh, part three, we are looking at the word remarkable. What word are we on today? Mark. We are on the word mark. All right? We looked at yesterday the word, we looked at last Sunday, sorry, the word remark, and we, looked, we will look at today the word mark, and get ready for next week. It's going to be awesome as well as we look at the word able. And what we're doing is we're breaking down the word remarkable, and it's showing us how we are called to be not normal. Um, we've had some amazing words here for the last two weeks. How many of you would say amen? I know I have been challenged um, to be not normal. Um, I know I've been challenged to be remarkable. Can I ask you guys, a, and this is the part where it gets hard for me because I want to speak to you guys, yes, as your brother, yes, as your friend, yes, as your warrior in battle and all that stuff, but I want to also speak to you as a pastor. How many of you guys have been walking in that remarkable? I'm being, I'm being honest. At work, you're, 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 you're really driving out that remarkable in you because you're in Christ. I, I wonder how many of you would say that. How many of you are, are driving that remarkable in your marriage? I know I'm trying and I'm working and I need help and, and Nancy needs help. We'll just leave it there and and we all need help. At work, we need help. Our bosses need help. Can I get an amen? Our children need help. Parents, children, our parents need help. Don't say amen. Trust me, don't. But in all these aspects, are you trying to draw out what is remarkable from your, for your marriage? Like, I'm being very honest with you because if not, you're coming to church, you're coming to church, and don't stop coming to church, but you're not bringing application to the stuff that you're learning. And one of the greatest things, one of the most important things of a, of a Christian is we apply what we learn. Amen. Man, we have to be honest. So are you being remarkable in your walk with Christ? Are you being remarkable in all aspects of your life? I, I hope you've been challenged to be that, to do that. Because if not, I'm a little worried as we jump into week three. And like, oh man, God should have been speaking and doing something already in you to bring that out of you. One of the great things that we've seen is we've been able to look into the lives of individuals in Scripture. People who were transformed from a life of normalcy to a, to a life of being not normal, being remarkable. We, we talked about these certain individuals that they were, remember the definition, notably unusual, extraordinary, we'll say it again, worthy of notice, attention. We spoke of Jeremiah and Stephen and Paul and we spoke of Peter. And in speaking of all these individuals, it's been very clear that we've seen Jesus and we've seen God in all of that. 
So, so as we've spoken, for example, on Peter, have you noticed something cool about the Bible? We've also been highlighting and focusing on Christ. Though our messages revolved around the life of Peter, around the life of Paul, around the life of Jeremiah, everything was always pointing back to Christ. Isn't that the beautiful of Scripture, that everything, God's text always points right back to him. How many of you can say amen? I love that. And speaking of these individuals, we've been able to see that, that even our Lord is not normal. I love two weeks ago, I asked someone to close off uh, Betsy, and I said, close off. She says, Lord, I thank you because you're not normal. And I was in the back, and I started laughing. I said, man, if someone were to grab that and put it on YouTube, take it out of context, they'll say, look, that church is whacked out. They teach false doctrine. But I just started laughing because what an awesome prayer that is. Thank you, Lord. And we've seen that all that he is, all that he does, all that he thinks, all of him is just remarkable. How many of you are grateful that we serve a remarkable God? Not a statue. Not a figurine. Come on. Not something that's hanging in the back of the church behind the preacher on a cross. Listen, we serve a remarkable person. How many of you can say amen? And we're filled, we learned last week, with his spirit. He lives in us. And here at New Life, one of the things that we're encouraging each other is that we could begin, begin to live in this remarkable because of the one who is in us. I want to kind of go ahead real quick before I jump into my message and just remind you guys how we started this whole entire mess of being not normal. It started off in week number one with 1 Corinthians chapter 4 if you're taking notes. And in 1 Corinthians 4, chapter 4, 1 Corinthians 4 verses 9 and 10, we grab some words there from Paul's writing uh, to the church of Corinth. And he says, For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last as men, Condemned to death, for we have been made a spectacle to the world. A spectacle, we talked about that. Both to angels and to men. And then he says in verse 10, we are fools for Christ's sake. Remember that? Remember that? What we see here was that Paul was visibly admitting that his life and that our lives as believers is not normal. And today we will look at the life of I guess I want to be careful, but I guess we'll say two individuals that was just this. They were, they were spectacles. And, and the truth is the scripture, now listen to the play of words here. The scripture is full of fools. Full of fools. I love that about scripture. It's full of fools, full of spectacles, full of individuals who gave up being normal in order to become remarkable. Amen. And that's what God is calling us. And I believe that the mandate that, that the Lord is calling upon us here as a church is this call to become remarkable, to become not normal. So as we jump into the second word and the third part of our series, we're going to focus on the word mark. Now let me give you a little introduction about this word mark. Because when I say mark, I wonder what the first thing that pops in your head is. A mark. Because... As I started to look at that word mark, I started to think about my life and people's lives and, and, and people's lives who are marked by God. And I wrote down a few thoughts that I want to make sure I share with you. And it's this, that if you have been truly touched by God, then there is a mark in your life. There is a mark upon you. And I'm going to break that down today. If God has truly touched me, then there is a mark over my life. You see, 
When the Lord pours His salvation upon someone, when, when someone has received the goodness of the Lord, I want you to catch this. There is no other truth in Scripture but that our lives show evidence of the move of God in our lives. It is impossible for someone to say that God is in me while their lives show evidence. Come on, biblical people, can we get an amen? Because the text of God teaches us that part of knowing that God is in an individual is by the evidence that shows from his life. Jesus said it to his disciples. You know when someone is my children. You know if someone is my follower by the what? By the fruits that they, that they show, that they bear. Like a tree that bears fruit. So, so we show evidence and, and, and that is true all over scripture passages. You know, we... We live in a day where, and, and I, want, I don't want to get lost in ministry and lost in church, but we, we live in a day where it's popular that someone will, will say a prayer and we mark it down as salvation. We live in a time where we are satisfied with the results that, that our churches are packed, they're, they're full, and, and we celebrate these things. And, and listen, the prayer is important, the church being full is important, but I want you to understand something. Don't get your mind wrong here. Our joy as believers is not in those results. Our joy as believers is in the results that there is evidence in the lives of Christians that the Lord is in them. That's our joy. I mean, church could be full, but what good is a full church without a church that shows evidence that God is there? Come on. We could have 50 people say a prayer of salvation, but what good if those 50 don't walk out and show evidence that they are saved? You guys get what I'm saying? So our joy is in something deeper. Our joy is that, man, these lives are transformed for Christ. How many of you could rejoice in that and say it's true? So I don't want, you know, I, I, I talked about my marriage real quick as I introduced this message, but, you know, I don't want my wife to just tell me she loves me. I don't want her to tell me she loves me. I want her to show evidence. And we're just gonna leave that there, okay? I just want her to show evidence that she loves me. I don't want her just to tell me she loves me, but show evidence she loves me. I want her to show me that she loves me too. And I look at my life with Christ and I say, I don't wanna just say I love you to Jesus. I need to show evidence. I want my life to demonstrate it as well. Lord, not only do I say I love you, but watch me do this. As I do, I love you. How many of us could see that all over Scripture? See, part of being not normal is living with a mark. You could write that down if you want. Part of being not normal is living with a mark. Let's break down what the word mark is. Very easy. Uh, went deep into, into the dictionary. And the word mark says a visible impression. How awesome is that definition? A visible impression or a trace on something. And then it goes down on to say, it's like a line, a cut, a dent, a stain, a bruise. I love that. A visible impression or trace on something. So we open up the word and we see that the Lord has always left the mark upon his people. In the Old Testament, we see God marking his covenant. He marks his covenant with Abraham and Abraham's offspring, which would be the Israelites. And, and I'm not going to go too deep into this, but just to show you that all over the Bible, there's a mark upon God's people before I get into my message. 
In Genesis 17, 9 through 14, if you're taking notes, Genesis 17, 9 through 14, God tells Abraham, you are to keep my covenant, you and all of your offspring. And then he goes on, he says, every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Guys, this is all the way in Abraham's time in Genesis chapter 17. He tells Abraham, when you get circumcised, you and all your offspring, you shall be assigned to me. I, I looked up in the Hebrew what that phrase meant, and it means this. You should be a distinguishing mark. That's good. He, it goes down in the Hebrew, and it explains it as this. You should be a banner, a remembrance. If you know anything about wars during these days, and when two armies were about to go to war, one of the things that they had always in the forefront of their battle, of their, of their troops was, they would raise their banner, and, and it was what they represented. It is what they stood for, whether it was a certain color or a certain emblem that was part of that troop, or you, you get what I'm saying. And, and they would raise the banner, and when Christ tells Abraham, you shall be a sign. He says, you're a distinguishing mark. You are a banner that is raised so that people could see that you are different. How many of you can say amen? And then we go into the New Testament. And in Romans chapter 2, for your notes, verse 28 and 29, Paul begins to write. And as Paul writes, he now says, he says this, you're now in Christ and if you are in Christ, it's, not an, it's no longer a circumcision in the flesh, but rather it's a circumcision of the heart and of the spirit. That's good. Because it no, it, it's no longer a physical thing, the circumcision. The mark that he's putting upon his people is not just a physical thing, but, but what Paul reveals to us in the New Testament is the mark that God leaves on us now, it's a spiritual change as well. So all over scriptures, his mark is upon his people. Whether they're Jews or whether they're Gentiles, the truth is no one is exempt. If Christ is in you, you are noticed. There is a visible impression. There is a trace that something has happened to you. That's the truth. So the first scripture that I really want you to read today is, and write this down in your notes, Ephesians chapter 1, 13, before we get into um, the bulk of our passage here. In Ephesians 1.13, it says, And you also were included in Christ, that when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, that's the message of truth, when you believed in it, look what he says, you were marked in him with a what? With a seal. You were marked with the promise of the Holy Spirit. When he, when he grabs that word, you were marked in him with a seal, the Greek means you were stamped. You were stamped. You were, you were marked. So, so listen to what I'm going to tell you before I get into our first example today. If we say we are not normal, if we say that we are a remarkable church, then there is a visible impression there is a trace on us. We have something to show, like a line, a cut, a stain, a dent, a bruise that I've been with God. 
If, if we say that we are in Christ and Christ is in us, if we raise our hands today and we say that we are saved, we know that this is true because there's a mark upon our lives. If we know Jesus, then we give evidence of the truth that we know Jesus. Come on. We know if someone knows Christ, not just by hearing what they say, but what, church? But also by seeing what they do. It's not just what they speak out of their mouth, but how they live with their lives. So we can't allow people to tell us they know God without being able, without them being able to show us there are some scars in their lives. Without them being able to show us there is a mark upon their life. You know what the word scar means? It means mark, but watch this. It is a mark that is left by a healed wound, by a sore, or by a burn. How many of you were broken, were ready to burn, maybe? You were just sick with sin, and now there is a mark upon you, there is a scar to show that your Redeemer has saved you from that death, from that damage. And this is what we're going to break down. Because all throughout Scripture, we see individuals who have been marked by God. And from that moment on, they were never the same. Their pattern was transformed. The way that they carried themselves, the things that they represented, the manner in which they spoke and in which they lived was transformed. It's almost as if they went through a traumatic event. You know anyone that's ever like survived trauma? You know someone like that? I know a few. I know a few. I hear, I know stories of people that something has happened to them and it made them just change their lives. I've seen men who were deep in drugs, alcoholism. They begin to lose it all, their families, their marriages, everything. But then they come to a place where they stop drinking. They leave the drugs. I've seen people who have come face to face with death and they've experienced the fear of just slipping away to the next life. And now they find Jesus or, they, or, they, or they're searching for the Lord or some sort of spirituality. Some of us here probably know someone like this. That when you look at their lives, is this not true? They now live with a story. They now live with this mark that is upon their lives. It's like a scar now that they could never get rid of. Know anyone like that? I got people like that in my family. And they'll literally show you the scars. They'll literally show you this is where I was and this is why I am who I am today. Guys, like every scar in a human body, catch this. Like every scar in a human body that remains forever, each scar recalls of a time that would never be forgotten. So much that it changes a person's life. It changes their direction that they were heading in and the course of life was completely altered from where they were, from where they were originally going. And I'm sure some of us here all know someone like that. And the first person I want to talk to you guys about, and I'm not going to spend hopefully too much time on it. Come on, how can I not mention the life of Jacob real quick? We look at the life of Jacob. He was the deceiver. Catch me for a second. In the Old Testament, he was the deceiver since birth. Jacob had a twin brother who was born right before him. So he was the oldest brother. Jacob was the youngest brother. And this Older brother, his name was Esau. Catch this now. Esau, I'm just giving you a summary before we break down the life of Jacob. Because Esau was the oldest, 
all of the father's inheritance went to Esau. Esau, not Jacob, would receive the blessing that was custom for the oldest son. Don't get lost. Just stay with me. Esau, not Jacob, held on to the birthright. That's what it was called. And as long as he had what was called the birthright, it would, it would always mean that he was the better son. Imagine living under that shadow. I have an older brother and he's, everyone, everyone always reminds me that he's better than me. All the money goes to him. Daddy's business goes to him. The riches, everything goes to him. And I'm just Jacob. I'm just left out here in the corner. No one really cares about me. Esau gets everything. Esau's the spoiled one. Esau's the one that gets it all. But no one thinks of me, Jacob. And he lived his whole life like this. Everything. Esau would run the family, the business, the money. All the blessing was his. Jacob lived his whole life desiring what his brother Esau had. But you know what happened with Jacob? He knew that he would never be able to receive what Esau had. Watch this. Because what Esau had can only be given through birth. Okay? Some of you already know where I'm going. You see, everything that Jacob wanted to do physically, he would never be able to receive. Because it was something that he has no control of. It's given to him. Through birth. Jacob understood that that blessing and that birthright, it's not given because of how good he worked. Or what good of a son he was or anything else that could have caused him to deserve to receive such an honor. Listen, it was the one thing in Jacob's life that he could do nothing about to take ownership of. Nothing. All he knew was that he was doomed. That he would always be the second born. Unworthy of owning something so special. He would never be able to have the birthright. The blessing from their father who was Isaac. I'll never have my daddy to lay hands on me and pray the special blessing over the oldest son. He understood this. And because of this, if you study the life of Jacob, his life from here on becomes a mess. The life of Jacob in Scripture is a mess. He, he eventually deceives his brother. He deceives his very own father. And we see that he takes a birthright and he takes the blessing. But watch this. He takes it in a way which is dishonorable and it's deceitful. He takes it away from his brother and from his father. And because of this now, his brother Esau is out to kill him. And Jacob now becomes a fugitive. And he's running for his life. And Jacob's life consisted of years like this. It was years of living in the consequences of such a deceiving or deceitful life. And then we go to Genesis chapter 32. And we read from verses 22 through 32, something powerful happens. (laughs) And in Genesis 32, here is Jacob. He's running and running and running away from his brother Esau. And as he runs from Esau, he's now wandering from land to land to land. And he finds himself running into a man. And this man gets in his path. Listen to this. Anyone know the story of Jacob? He begins to fight with this man. Scripture calls it wrestle. 
And as he begins to wrestle with this man, it's actually one of the greatest fights, one of the greatest wrestling matches of his life because it lasts all night to the breaking of day. It's an amazing fight that we see here. All night. And it gets to a point that this man that Jacob is fighting and wrestling with, catch this now, he touches the socket of Jacob's hip. And Jacob's hip becomes out of joint. And Jacob notices there's something different about this man. And he tells this man, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Guys, come here. Did Jacob not just leave his brother and his father with a birthright and with the blessing? Yes or no? And now he's fighting with a man and he the man dislocates his hip, and as he dislocates his hip, he recognizes there's something different about this man. He takes a hold of the man. He says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And that's ironic because why would he ask for a blessing when he just took the two greatest blessings that anyone could get? Because he knew that the blessing that he received by trickery, by deceitful plotting, was not properly given to him. It was not properly earned. And what he did was he grabbed the man. He says, I'm, I'm longing for a blessing. I'm longing for a change. I'm longing for you just to reach me in an area that I've never been able to fulfill myself. It was a cry of desperation. A man that was, what we see in Genesis 32 was Jacob, this man, is done running. He, he's tired of living in the shadow of his sin. He wanted something given to him, not something that he would take from someone. And I believe that he was just tired of living in a dishonorable way. He was tired of being known as a cheat. Listen to what I'm about to tell you. Jacob probably felt that the past would always haunt him for the rest of his life. And because he felt that way, he says, I'm not going to let you go. I need you. Bless me. So the man asks Jacob, what's your name? And Jacob says, I'm Jacob. And the man looks at him and he says this, not anymore. Your name is now Israel. And look what he tells him. You struggled enough with God and with man. You know what he's telling him? You now go from Jacob to Israel, what, what does that mean? You now go from deceiver, from cheat, to a worthless individual, to Israel. Meaning, you now go from cheater to triumphant. That's good. Uh, I'm sure that there is something in this scripture that, something here that we could relate to or feel like maybe in your life you're in a constant struggle with God. In a constant struggle with man and and you feel like, when is this struggle going to end spiritually? Anyone there? You don't have to raise your hand, but you've been there? When is this struggle going to end? When am I going to get over this sin? When am I going to break free? When is God going to finally bless? When God, and we're wrestling and we're fighting and we're arguing with, with God. Struggle after struggle. We say things like this. I don't want to be this way. I don't want to live in my past anymore. How many of you have done this? I'm tired of running. I'm tired of feeling unstable. Listen, I could see Jacob saying, I want to be firm. I want my faith to endure. I want my relationships to be stable. I want my life to be concrete and dependable. 
I no longer want to live in a life that I've created, which is normal. I don't want to be normal. Not one more day. And what does he tell this man? I will not let you go until you bless me. And at that moment, the man looks at Jacob, and the man reveals himself to Jacob. And he looks at him, and he says, I am God, and you've prevailed against me. You are prevailer. You are now triumphant. You are now Israel. Guys, some of us will never understand that because we didn't live in a live in a house like Jacob, so we would never get it. But that is the first positive word that someone has probably ever spoken to Jacob. And he looked at the man, and he probably let go of the man, and he says, really? You really think I could do this? You really think I'm triumphant? You really think I would no longer be a cheater, a deceiver? And you know what? At this point, I want to be very cautious and respectful to your life. But I'm sure some of you here could fill in the blanks. Ready? You mean to tell me that I'm no longer blank, blank, blank anymore? You actually call me triumphant now? And I'm sure that if you could fill in those blanks, you could fill it honestly with some interesting words. And at that moment, God calls him triumphant and prevailer. And Jacob takes hold of something so great. For the first time in his life, he feels a sense of accomplishment, of worth, of purpose. No longer do I have to live in the same way, in the same manner. Tired of this everyday normal life that brings nothing good to me. Now Jacob's life is not normal. There's a feeling of remarkable in him. There's a feeling of worth, of notice now, that now people would pay attention to me. Now my question to the church and to my question to you individually is this. Is there a prevailer in you? Is there a triumpher in you? See, in Jacob's dysfunctional life, in his running The Lord didn't get in his path to just fight him and wrestle him. How many of you have had a faith walk with the Lord? And you've gone years, maybe months, maybe days, but for some of us, maybe years. And you feel like your walk with God, more than anything else, has been nothing but a wrestling match with God. How many of you feel that way? Every day, God, I wake up and it's like we're fighting. Me and you are wrestling. Every day, God, I feel like, shoot, you bless them, but look at me, God. I I guess I'm going to keep wrestling with this Bible. (laughs) And we pray and we fast and we read scripture and nothing's happening, God. I wonder how many of us have been there. We just wrestle. And then one, one day, this man comes in his path as he's running away from his problems because you know you never run away from your problems, right? And as he's trying to run away from his problems, he hits a big problem. He starts a fight with someone. I love that the text doesn't tell us how he started the fight, but something happened and he started a fight. The guy probably stood in the way. He's like, let me get through. I'm trying to get through. He's like, I'm not going to let you get through. I need to talk to you. Like, well, I don't want to talk to you. He's like, well, we're going to talk. Why? And you can see Jacob put up his fist. The guy was like, all right. He had no idea it was God. Some biblical scholars, was it God? Was it Jesus in the Old Testament? Was it an angel of God? You could determine all that, but here is this heavenly being. God there with, let's bring it on. And they just wrestle. And, and we know that he took it easy on Jacob because he could have snapped him in half in one second. So he's just wrestling with him. Just wrestling with him. And we read the scripture and we think, well, why is God wrestling with him? Come here, come here. 
And we live life, and we're like, well, why is God wrestling with me? It's almost as if God is just wrestling with me. Watch this. He, he wrestles and fights with me, and he does all these things to me. For what? To stress me out and to get me more frustrated because I never see the end. I'm going to give you, I wish uh, I could call my son up here, but it will be weird if I do this with him. I do something at the house with my son, and I want to show you what I'm talking about real quick. I grab my son, and I put him on me, and I put my face on his face, and I go, Jackson. And he looks at me and goes, Dada. And I go, Jackson. He goes, Dada. And he knows on the second one, it's on. We just started doing this recently. I, I wonder if he would do it right now. He's sleeping. Ah, I wake him up right now, it won't be good. And we go, Jackson. He goes, Dada, and Jackson, and Dada. And then he gets ready. When he says Dada the second time, he's like, ah, and he knows it's on. And I wrestle and I fight him, and I'm biting him, and I'm tickling him, and he's wrestling with me. Now, that's odd because I'm 30 years older than him. So obviously, if you were to see me from the outside, like, he's not wrestling. He's just showing something different. He's not wrestling. But if I were to grab Tito, Tito, come up here. <laughs> he's someone that I could do this with. I've known, we've known each other since we were young, little. If I were to grab Tito and I say, hey, this could be taken out of context too, so I have to be careful. <laughs> Told you the church is full of heresy. But um, if I say Tito and you say, Rigo, Tito. Where are you going? We're not done fighting. <laughs> you smell good, man. If I were to do that in the middle of aisle two, where you buy the groceries, and you see two men in the same age, Tito, Rigo, you'll probably look at them and say, I'm going to the next aisle, I'll come back to this aisle. It'll be odd. You'll think that we're playing and we're foolish, these guys are weird, but then you'll be like, maybe they're fighting, maybe they're arguing. And sometimes our walk with God is like, Rigo, God! God, Regal, God, and I'm, and I'm doing all this stuff with God, and God is wrestling with me, and, and I'm just prevailing with the spiritual things that God is trying to show me, and the whole time, I'm going through my life fighting and wrestling with God, and I think he's just doing this stuff to bug me, to frustrate me, and the reality of it is, it's the same thing I do with my son, the reason why I wrestle and I let him prevail against me is not to destroy his life, but the reality the reason why I wrestle with my son is so I can embrace my son. And part of the reason why God allows you to wrestle with him is not to destroy you, but in reality, it's to embrace you. And some of us will never receive the embracing moment of God unless we go through the matches of wrestling that we go through with God. And that's the reality of life. Some of you need to fight with God. Watch this. Some of you, God needs to fight with you because if he doesn't fight with you, you'll never be able to feel the embrace of God. Come on. And the reason why I fight with my son is not because I hate him. It's not because I, Jackson, Dada, Jackson. It's not because I want him to know I'm tougher than you. I'm stronger than you. And if you act up, I'm going to beat you, silly. No. 
It's because in the midst of us wrestling and fighting, there's a part where we embrace each other. And I show son that though we fight and though we argue and though we and do all these things, there is an embracing that comes from it. That man, you'll never be the same when you walk out of it again. My, fa- my son will be able to wrestle and do things with me in a way that he'll never be able to do with no other man. You want to know why? Because there's an embrace from this man that no other man will ever give him. Come on. You want to know why I've never left God? And I have fought with God. And I have fought with God. But the reason why I've never left God is because he's embraced me. And every fight that I've ever had has been worth it because the embrace is so much better. And if I go, amen, give God praise if you want. But if I go and I start fighting with another God, I'm not going to feel the same embrace that the one that my God shows me. And here's Jacob in his running the Lord In his dysfunctional life, the Lord doesn't get in his path to fight with him and wrestle with him. Listen to this. The Lord gets in his path to embrace him. Come here, church. So when all of you think that the Lord is going, come on, God, you, you know, whatever your name is, and you guys start fighting and wrestling, that's not why, come here, that's not why God showed up. God never showed up to fight you and wrestle with you. The end result is he showed up to embrace you. How many of you could say amen? I'll read a passage. Peterson, who is on the side of a reformer, so you can't say I'm taking scripture out. He summarizes Romans 8, 31 through 39 through the message. And he wrote this Bible, which is a lot of summary of scripture. Tries to grab the Greek and the Hebrew to summarize what scripture is teaching us. And look what he says about Romans 8, 31 through 39 as we read from the message translation. He says, so what do you think? With God on our side like this, how can we lose? Come on. If God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, embracing our condition, exposing himself to the worst by sending his own son, is there anything else he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? And who would dare tangle with God by messing with one of God's chosen? Who would dare even to point a finger? The one who died for us, who was raised to life for us, is in the presence of God at this very moment sticking up for us. Do you think anyone is going to be able to drive a wedge between us and Christ's love for us? There is no way. Not trouble, not hard times, not hatred, not hunger, not homelessness, not bullying threats, not backstabbing, not even the worst sins listed in Scripture. Listen now. They kill us in the cold blood because they hate you. We're sitting ducks. They pick us off one by one. None of this phases us because Jesus loves us. I'm absolutely convinced that nothing, nothing living or dead, angelic or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way that Jesus, our master, has embraced us. Come here. I read this stuff, and you're going to tell me to live a normal life? Are you kidding me? Here I go, ready? And I'm about to get into my message, I promise you, but hold up. 
What changed about Jacob's life? What changed about Jacob to experience this? What's the answer? Does anyone know? What changed about Jacob to experience what he just experienced? Come on, just shoot the answer. What changed? I thought I heard the answer. Church, nothing changed about Jacob. The Lord gave him a desire. And now he was able to receive something, listen, that he never was able to attain by his own works. Like Esau, remember? Now Jacob receives something that he could have never received on his own. You can say Jacob goes through a new birth now in Genesis 32. And now Jacob's life, he receives an inheritance, a blessing that was given to him that no one will ever be able to take away again. You know, when Jacob stole the birthright and when Jacob stole the blessing, I don't think that's why God made Israel a mighty nation through Jacob. I think that the wrestling match that God had with Jacob and changed his name on that day to it, because watch this, watch this. What changed Jacob to Israel? Did stealing the blessing and stealing the birthright change Jacob's name to Israel? It was when God embraced him on the path of that city that changed Jacob from Israel. So, so watch this. No matter how hard he worked to receive something that he did not deserve, it was never going to change him. Come on, someone. But when the moment that you come to Christ and realize that you can do nothing for what Christ is already pouring into you, that's when your life is transformed. And in the moment that he wrestles with God and God embraces him, God changes his name at that moment from Jacob to Israel, not at the moment that he stole the blessing. And I truly believe that because of that moment is where the beautiful blessing comes out of his life and we see Israel as a nation. It all happened because of the role that he got embraced in. It wasn't because of the home that he caused trickery upon. It was in the road of embracement. Guys, if you could just embrace God today. There's a passage that, well, before I get into that passage, I want to read the rest of this. I'm going to read from 32 verse 30 on. It says, so Jacob called the name of that place Peniel. And he says, for I have seen God face to face, and my life has been preserved. So as he crossed over Penuel, the sun rose over him. And look what it says next about Jacob. He limped on his hip. Do you want to know what that means? For the rest of Jacob's life, there was a what upon his life? There was a mark. There was a scar. And he couldn't hide from it. How'd you get that limp? Let me tell you a story. Watch this. And I bet you his story went something like this. How'd you get that mark? Well, I got this limp. And I bet you it went, I got it, because one day the Lord embraced me on a road. And since the day he embraced me, I've never been the same. I very, very highly doubt that he said, because I fought with God. And he pulled my hip out. I bet you that was his story, because you see it through his life. Let's keep reading. He walked, he limped. On his hip, verse 32, Therefore to this day the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank which is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrank. What did I get out of those verses right there? Did you notice the mark, the scar on Jacob's life? Listen now. Affected the generations that followed him. See, when Christ marks you, your sphere of influence grows and reaches others beyond your imagination. I want you to catch that in those verses. There's a passage in 2 Corinthians 1, 
If you're taking notes, verses 21 and 22, and it says this, Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He has anointed us. He has set his steel, his seal, his stamp, his mark of ownership on us. And he has put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Thank you, Lord, for stamping, for marking, for scarring my life with the good news of Jesus Christ. How many of you can say amen? And now, as I get ready to end, here's my message. It's found in the book of Acts, if you could turn there. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. And in Acts chapter 3, verse 1 through 10, I'm going to read it. Let's read it together, huh? There's an awesome story there. When you're there, just give me an amen. Acts chapter 3, we'll start off in verse 1. We're there? Acts 3, chapter 3, verse 1. Here it is. Let's read this together. Now Peter and John went up together. They went up to the temple at the hour of prayer. Just listen to the words and let things just hit you and, and let things just minister to you. It was the ninth hour and a certain man that was lame from his mother's womb was carried. And they laid him daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful. He would ask alms from those who entered the temple. And when seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said to him, Look at us. And he gave them, the lame man gave them, Peter and John, his attention. Look what it says next expecting to receive something from them. But then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have. I don't have money to give you. But what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and he lifted him up. Immediately his feet and his ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood He walked and he entered into the temple with them, walking and leaping. And of course he's leaping, man. He's never done that in his life. And he's praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And then they knew, come here, then they knew, that it was he who sat begging. It was he who sat asking for money at beautiful gate the temple and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to the slain man you guys with me lame man this man was crippled since birth he would daily beg for money by the entrance of the temple and then he would sit down by a certain gate a gate that was called beautiful come on how ironic is this He's sitting in a place called beautiful, but the scene looks nothing beautiful at all. Because of his state, the lame man is forbidden by the Jewish law 
to enter into the temple. He can't go in. And I'm sure that as he stood by the gate, sat by the gate, sorry, and he would look at people, he would lean over sometimes and say, man, if I could wish, if I could just go in. Man, if I could just give the way they give and jump in there the way they jump and live life in the temple the way they live life. I'm sure he desired to see it every day of his life. So I said, why is this lame man sitting by the gate called beautiful in the temple? It makes perfect sense that he would be sitting by this beautiful gate begging for alms. Because right past that gate nearby was where people would give an offering at the temple. And he knew that as people would walk by beautiful gate, people had money to be ready to give to the temple. If you read the passage clearly with me, you saw that when he began to leap and he began to jump and walk around the temple, people said, hey, it's the man that begs, that beautiful. He's well. What I get out of this passage was that this man was very known around this area. My wife and I drive by Sunset Drive to go home. When we drive by that area, there is a very, very known homeless woman to us. The reason being is because she's at the same spot every single day. So she's known by the neighborhood. She's known by that block. Everyone that drives by there knows, oh, that's the woman from Sunset. That's the poor lady from Sunset. That's the homeless from Sunset. So he was known. He, many knew him because daily they would see him there in the entrance of the temple. And I know without a shadow of a doubt that the Jewish leaders also knew him because they were always going in and out of the temple. The Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes and the priests and the high priest. I'm sure all knew him. Come here. What a life this beggar has made for himself. Come here, boy. He allowed his handicap. He allowed his handicap condition to limit him to a life of a beggar. To live a life of a beggar just because he was handicapped. You know we could learn from this, right? You know that? Because we can allow our handicap conditions. I don't know what might be some of your handicap conditions. Some things that might handicap you spiritually. Come here. Do know, I, I know that there are things in my life that spiritually handicap me. I know that. I could write a book about the things that handicap me spiritually. I don't know the ones that handicap you spiritually. But I've seen that at times these things that handicap me, they have a hold on me. And they tell me that that's who I am. And that's who I will always be. How many of you can relate to this? I'll always be this beggar by the way. 
I'll never be able to do what they do. I live like that. So many days of my life. Handicaps after handicaps. Well, God will never, and I will never, and, and I will never be. And it begins to tell me that I'll always be. So why try? Why fight to prevail, to be triumphant? Difference between Jacob and him, right? Jacob's fighting God. This guy has limited his beggar. Oh, I might as well sit here and make this my life. This is the kind of person who has allowed their own personal or spiritual handicap, listen, to mark him and define who he will be regardless of who God says you already are. Come on. He was at a beautiful place sitting by a beautiful gate, but he could do nothing about it. And then I start to wonder, is this you? Is this me? Is this us? We're here. We're in a beautiful place. We sit among beautiful presence and beautiful worship, beautiful lights and beautiful air and beautiful messages. And, and we sit here in this beautiful place. But Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, we can't do anything to enjoy that in which we sit in. I wonder if we could relate to that. I wonder if we're like this beggar. Why is this? Because there's a handicap. A handicap that has marked me to mark me to live defeated instead of a God who desires to mark me to live remarkable. See, sometimes the way that this happens, it's through a fight, through some wrestling. It's not because God wants the worst for you. Instead, He wants to embrace you so that you can receive the best of Him. So we're sitting in church. You're going to fast in a couple weeks with us. We're doing all these things that we feel God is calling us to do. We're trying our best, God, but, but I feel like I can do nothing with my life. I feel like I'll never be able to get to this place where you're calling me to get to. We feel just like this man. We're close to the answer, but it's beyond my reach. I'll never be able to do this. And every day he sits at the temple and he sits by the gates and he's watching and he's begging and he's seen, listen, listen, he's seen the same people come in and he's seen the same people go out. He's seen the same people be blessed. He's seen, seen the same people leave blessed and yet stays the same and he comes back another morning. Can I have some money? Everyone else is changing, but the lame man is staying the same. You come, see the same people come and go. Some are come, be blessed, some leave, are blessed. But yet you feel like you stay the same. Does anyone know the answer of how to get out of this mess? It's found in verses 5, 6, and 7. Read with me. Peter looks at him and says, look at me. Verse 5 says, so he gave Peter and John his attention. If you have a Bible that you highlight and you write no notes on or you underline, you could underline this. He gave them his attention. Come here. But he gave them his attention for one reason. 
expecting to receive from them. Peter, being so wise now, looks at him and says what? Hey, what you're looking for, what you want to receive, I can never what? I can't give you. Because I don't have any silver. I don't have any gold. I can't give you what you're looking for. It's kind of like Jacob, isn't it? I want that. And Isaac, his father's like, son, you're not my firstborn. I don't have what you want. Come on. One day he sees his brother starving in the field. I'm hungry. Give me some of that soup. And Jacob says, you want some of this soup? Yes, give me some. He's like, give me your birthright. He's like, have it. But I can't give it to you. I don't have the answer. I don't have the ability to give you what you are asking and desiring. But one day, he's on a path and he begins to wrestle with this God. He says, give it to me. And that day, that guy says, what's your name? Jacob, I'm going to give it to you. And he gives him something that Isaac was never able to give him. He gives him something that his brother Esau was never able to give him. The man on the road, the man in, Pen- in Peniel, gave him something that only one person is able to give him, and that is God. And he says, I make you what you've never experienced before, and that is triumphant. You're tired of losing. You're tired of living in a fight. You're tired of trying to fight and win, and you never win. You always lose. You always live defeated. I'm going to give you something that you've never experienced. You are now victorious, prevailer, triumphant. It's yours. He received something that no one else was able to give And then we fast forward and we see ourselves by the temple in the New Testament, Herod's temple. And there's a handicapped young, uh, not young, but an older man there. He's been there since birth. Give me money. Day in and day out. But one day he runs into Peter. And Peter looks at him and says, look at me. And the man says, finally, someone's going to give me some money today. Peter, knowing his heart, looks at him and says, I don't have what you're looking for. I don't have any gold. I don't have any silver to give you. And then he stops for a moment and he says, but what I do have. Everyone say, I do have. That's what I'm going to give you. So in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk he took him by the right hand lifted him up immediately his feet his ankle his bones received strength you see because we can't live life expecting from man and from what man things give us Peter says me as a man and as a great man that he was I can do nothing to help you but I do have the name of Jesus Christ. Verse 8 says, So the lame man leaped up. He stood and he walked and he entered the temple with them. No one carried him anymore. And he was walking and leaping and praising God. I want you to notice this. Notice this. Come here. He no longer sat among what is beautiful. Because when the Lord marks you, you get to experience what is beautiful. We 
come and we go. We close off and we say this beautiful little phrase, so churchy. You are loved. You walk out these doors just like I walk out these doors. But how many of you sit down on these seats and all you do is sit among what is beautiful, but you never have been able to experience that which is beautiful. How many of you, today's the day that you're tired of sitting among beautiful, and today's the day that you say, I will start living among what is beautiful. Lord, mark me. Lord, stamp me. Lord, scar me. Because I want to experience this. Not just sit among it. I love the comparison between Jacob and the beggar. Let me tell you why I love it. One is physically whole and then made crippled. The other is crippled to be then made physically whole. God, make up your mind. Do you want to cripple people to make them whole or do you want to grab whole people and make them crippled? And what does God say? Come on. This is the heart of God. What does God say? He's like, I know. I know what each person needs in order to live remarkable. Come on. And if someone needs to be made whole to become remarkable, then I'll make them whole. But if someone needs to remain crippled to be remarkable, I will keep them crippled to make them whole. Oh, my God. Some of you didn't even catch that. He grabs two different individuals. Like, well, then who is God? Is God the healer? Like the beggar? Or is God the Old Testament one that made him from whole to crippled? It's just the... It is the weirdness of God. It is the not normalcy of God that you and I do not understand. But behind each one, there's an agenda that is greater than their physical need. What is it? It is to fulfill their spiritual void. When is made whole and the other is made crippled he looks at us through the scripture through the text and he tells us something greater than what we see and what he tells us is I know Rico you tell the people at New Life that I know what each one of them needs in order for them to live remarkable so if they want to continue to fight we'll fight <laughs> they want to wrestle we'll wrestle and it'll be on church God Church, God, it's on. But I will, Regal, you tell them this. You don't preach gospel. You don't tell people what they want to hear. You don't give and speak for itching ears. You tell the one that is whole, God might make you crippled. And you tell the one that is crippled, God might make you whole. Well, why would God do that? Because he knows what's best for you, the church. Come on, man. tell you what your tomorrow will bring I can't give you what you need not even this church could give you what you need no one can give you what you need but what we do know is in the name of Jesus he knows what you need I, I could almost see men I could almost see Jacob's life right so you mean you're gonna keep me like this forever and God's like just the way I want you. It kind of reminds me of Paul, right? A thorn in the flesh has been given to me. 
You're the apostle Paul. It doesn't matter because God knows what I needed so I would not boast, but that I would stay humble. So he gives Paul a thorn in his flesh. It's not a real thorn. It's wood. It's a sickness. It's an ailment he had. Some sort of back or eye or both eye and back condition. Very disgusting to look at. Very disgusting to see Paul. And yet he was a public. Imagine being, you know, most public speakers, if there's this new thing, you know, they're all good looking. They're amazing. They dress nice. They're good looking. And I'm like, man. But not Paul. Paul's like, couldn't even look at him. Disgusting. And God's like, that's exactly what I want. Because like that, I'll get back exactly what I would desire from you. And I'm okay. Listen, I'm okay with God grabbing my crippledness and making me whole or grabbing my wholeness and making me crippled as long as I get to live in his remarkable. Because what's greater for you? What's greater for you? Is it to be whole and miss out on remarkable? Or for God to break some things down in your life so that you can become remarkable? What's greater for you? We can't make it. Man, this... This series is messing me up. You guys have no idea what it's doing to me. But like, you can't make this stuff up. Regardless of where they were at, the beggar and Jacob, regardless of where they were at, regardless, they would never experience a normal day in their lives again. Come here. Do you think that Jacob living the way he lived for the rest of his life actually cared about his hip? Come on, be honest. That guy was like, hey, I'll stop running and jogging in the morning. I could care less. What I have now is so much more worth it. They never experienced a normal day. They had a scar for the rest of their lives. A scar that would show them that they're normal. Do you guys want to know, since I gave you the influence that Jacob had, let's look at the influence that the beggar had. It's verse 9 and 10. Same chapter, Acts 3. And all the people saw him. I love this. And all the people saw him. And he was walking. And he was praising God. And then they knew. Then they knew. Everyone say, then they knew. Because they will know in your life also when you begin to show them the scars. Then they knew that it was he. It was the man who sat begging for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were all filled with wonder. They were all filled with amazement at what had happened to this man. The Lord knows what he is doing, church. And the Lord knows how to deal with you. So I end with telling you, allow him, let him mark, let him scar you, let him mark you. Church, live remarkable. Live notably unusual. Live extraordinary. Live worthy. Worthy that God would allow you to be noticed. Live worthy that God would give you the attention. Live in that manner. 
so much more I could say, man. I ask you to stand with me as we close up. You know how I know God is alive? Uh, this is stupid. I don't even have to share this, but it's just God's faithfulness. I knew I was teaching on Mark and the word remarkable. And I get little devotionals at work from a beautiful sister in the, in the, in the and she sends out a devo for like three days in a row. And the first day I read it, it starts talking about the beggar. A lot of the points that I got from the devotional. And I said, this is so weird, God. Because as I was getting ready to preach on, on part three of this series, and you knew I was going to use the beggar. He allows a woman who has no idea, doesn't even come to our church, probably doesn't even listen to our podcast, to send the ministry-wide a devotional for three days talking about the beggar. And I said, God, you have such a sense of humor. You knew I was going to focus on him in this message. And you gave it as a present to say, I just confirmed things, Rigo. Confirmed things to show you that I want you to live in this remarkable. I don't know where you're at, but God can show himself real to you. Maybe you're the beggar that is by the gate the member that is sitting down every day waiting or maybe you're Jacob and you're just wrestling and you're just fighting wherever you're at whether you're Jacob or whether you're the beggar God is is definitely calling you to remarkable to get out of your normal and the way he wants to do that today is I know it sounds weird but just understand that he just wants to scar you. What do you mean? He just wants to mark you. That your life would never be the same again. Amen? As we close up our, close our eyes and open up our hearts, is, is that you? Do you need, say, God, I, last week I, I prayed that you would realign me, that you would cause me to remark. Last week came up for prayer maybe and or I sat in my seat or I stood and you, you caused me to align myself and remark me into that person. Now as I'm on this path, Lord, just mark me for good. Stamp me for good. Scar me for good. Let my life show to the world that I have a story to tell. Whether I go from whole to cripple, from cripple to whole, that Lord, I would live in your remarkable. Scar me and mark me forever. Today, if this word was for you, just for you, and you need prayer that the Lord just mark you and stamp you and just deliver upon you. That Lord, you're, you're willing to say this today. That Lord, maybe I'm crippled, you're going to make me whole. Maybe I'm whole and you're going to make me crippled. Whatever it is. But just let me walk out of here. Mark. So if that's you, the altar's open. I want you to come up. We want to pray for you again. Say, Lord, I won't leave. I'm not going to let go. I'm not letting go until you mark me. I'm believing for this. As people come up, if you need prayer, you come up. But I'm going to do something different today. I'm going to open it up to the church. If you're there standing and you feel in your heart, I want to just go pray for this brother. I want to pray alongside, not for them, but with them. I want to pray alongside with them that the Lord would mark them. I'm going to open it up for you to come and, and hug that person and pray together as a family. 
for that individual. So the altar is open. Let's worship. In the next few minutes, if that's you, and say, Lord, mark me. Lord, stamp me. Lord, scar me so that I can live remarkable, not normal. I receive what you have to offer me in Jesus' name. If that's you, let's pray. The rest of you just prepare your hearts. Ask the Lord to speak to you.